it's kind of a bit of a process. You kind of bring them in with a rope and then you get on their backs and you tape their legs up and you put them in a truck and you kind of move them, move them somewhere else uh, where they're less of a nuisance potentially. Pre so. Prehistoric beasts, literally dinosaurs that you're wrangling and sending somewhere, <laughs> somewhere else. Absolutely. What's going on, everybody? Welcome to the Tribe of Millionaires podcast, your personal access to wisdom from the world's greatest minds. Learn, grow, and succeed with us, building your tribe one story at a time. My guest today is a GoBundance member profile of Eric Rice. He's from Pittsburgh. He's an investor. He does a whole bunch of cool stuff, and we'll let him tell you more about it. So, Eric, man, welcome. Thanks, Jamie. I'm excited to be here and uh, excited to jump into the story. Excellent, excellent. I'm right on Pittsburgh, right? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I always you, confuse you, you with... Eric Nelson. It's two Eric's. Oh yeah. Two Eric's, but you have an insane, every time I meet you, you're like, oh yeah, Pittsburgh. You're like, this guy's from here. You have a great, uh, a great memory in terms of names and locations. You know, it's funny people I talk to about being in GoBundance or joining GoBundance. The number one concern they have is I don't know what kind of value I add. And my whole point is like, I don't know anything. Like, I don't, you know what I mean? Like I don't have any knowledge of anything. Like somebody says, Hey, I'm trying to figure out how to do a subject to him. Like, but I know the guy who does like my, that's the one gift I have. I have no pigment. I have no hair. I'm five, seven. I talk too much. Those are all of the things that I was born with. But the one blessing I have is for some reason, I remember stories. And then when I hear your story, I can connect you to another story. And that's my value proposition. The ultimate, uh, the ultimate connector and the ultimate podcast host. It's perfect. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. But let's talk about you. I want to get into you and, uh, and get, that sounded weird. I want to get into your story and figure out what you're all about. So all we know is you're from Pittsburgh and you're an investor. Give us a little bit more you're from there originally and tell us the story of where, how you got to where you are today. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, I did, I did grow up in Pittsburgh. Uh, it's a great town, a lot of, a lot of great people, kind of good blue collar, hard work in place. And, uh, you know, enjoyed, enjoyed living there and growing up there, went off to college and uh, I was pretty into the outdoors at the time and, and wildlife. And so I went into wildlife biology and uh, that was that was kind of the career I came out of college with. Uh, and that that eventually led me down to uh, a, a barrier island in South Carolina called Kiowa Island, uh, which is a beautiful place. Highly recommend it. And uh, and, you know, so I spent kind of the first part of my adult life uh, kind of chasing bobcats and uh, and doing research studies on, on bobcats and jumping on alligators and doing deer studies. So it was, it was pretty, a pretty great setup. So that, that was the first iteration of uh, adult life for me. Did you get bit by an alligator ever or almost? <laughs> no, no, we were pretty careful about it. It was, uh, <laughs> yeah, you don't want, you know, you don't want to get into that. So no, no, I can't even imagine getting near an alligator other than at like a zoo. So you literally would just get on their backs. Yeah, it's kind of a bit of a process. You kind of bring them in with a rope and then you get on their backs and you tape their legs up and you put them in a truck and you kind of move them, move them somewhere else uh, where they're less of a nuisance potentially. Pre so. Prehistoric beasts, literally dinosaurs that you're wrangling and sending somewhere, <laughs> somewhere else. Absolutely. That's crazy. All right. So how do we go from wrangling dinosaurs to syndicator? So uh, it, it's a bit of a winding road, but it, it did start, I think, during that time uh, at Keough Island. So a, a large part of my job was like in a truck driving up and down the beach, uh, doing different shorebird studies and that sort of thing. And on the other side of me uh, were all these large, you know, beautiful homes. Uh, and I kind of would think to myself every day, 
you know, the entire coast of this country and many other countries in the world are aligned with houses like this. And, and I would like to maybe have one one day. So uh, what is the path to doing that? And uh, I didn't really know at the time, but I knew that I was interested in real estate in general. So uh, I figured I'd, I'd become an agent or a broker and and just and, and learn from there. So uh, I, I checked out kind of the, the, the commercial side of things and I checked out the residential side of things. And I was fortunate enough to have a a family friend that was successful up in the Washington DC area that, that allowed me to come and shadow him. And, uh, that was a, a fantastic experience, uh, which eventually led to, I think about a five-year partnership that we had up in Washington DC. So I got my licenses, moved up to Washington DC and, uh, and got into the residential real estate world. Uh, that was in 2008. So right at, right at, wow. you know, during the crash. So, so this is like eight to 13. Yeah, roughly. Yep. Okay. What was that? You say residential. What was it? What were you doing? Were you buying and holding, flipping? What was the, or was it everything? So, yeah. So this is before the investing started. So remember, I, I had no money when I moved there. Uh, <laughs> and so, and I didn't know how to raise money at the time. I didn't even know that was a thing. So I knew that I could get my real estate license and sell some real estate. So, um, fortunately, my partner up there had some existing, uh, relationships with, uh, countrywide at the time, which, which then kind of got rolled into bank of America. And so we were foreclosure listing agents was a big part of my initial job up there. Uh, and then we were also working with just normal transactional buyer and sellers in the, in the Washington DC market. But the foreclosures was really an, an area where I learned and saw a lot. And I sold hundreds of, of bank owned properties at the time to investors and got to, got to be kind of part of the process. I see them you know, I, they'd be like, what do you think of this design? Because we'd be listing them oftentimes too, if they were flipping them. And so I got to sit in on that and have a lot of input. And I was kind of like, I think I'm on the wrong side of the table. I, I would like to get to the other side of the table, be the investor. And so, uh, and so that uh, eventually, uh, after about five years in DC, my wife and I decided to move back to the Pittsburgh area uh, to be closer to family and, and have a family of our own. And I continued doing residential real estate there as a, as a salesperson. And then in 2016, I think I bought my first, uh, kind of bad condition property or, you know, derelict property to, to flip, uh, and, and try my hand at, at, uh, at becoming a real estate investor. And that nice. was, you know, not a total disaster, but it wouldn't I was be just a saying, disaster. How did, how did it go? Measure. Yeah. Give, give me some detail <laughs> on that, on that first deal. Well, how did it go? What happened? Yeah. So I, I, I think my initial plan was that it would take about three months and cost about $50,000 to rehab. And I think I put about, I know I put, I spent a little over a year uh, doing it and I spent about $150,000 on the rehab. So uh, the end result was a lot of, uh, a lot of lessons learned. And uh, I think, you know, roughly a break even could have been plus or minus $5,000. My records weren't that great by that time. Uh, but, uh, you know, I used everything, everything we had to do that one, uh, home equity line of credit, racked up credit card debt, all the wrong things. And, uh, and so I learned a lot of what not to do on that one. And I also learned that that probably wasn't the most scalable way for me to do things on my end. So, uh, did, did one more house flip after that pretty successfully actually, and made some money and then wanted, wanted to get more into the, uh, the apartment building and, and kind of commercial real estate investing side of things. Cause I felt like it was a little more scalable. So that's interesting. So you did two flips and then one right to commercial, right to, to commercial multifamily. Yeah. 
Wow. Yeah. What made you go for the second flip? Like, I mean, you could have easily been like, okay, whew, made it out without losing everything here. <laughs> like went into credit card debt and everything. Like I'm, what was, what was it that made you say, you know what, I'm going to do one more. Yeah. I, the, the second one was kind of an opportunistic thing. The, the right deal came along. It didn't require nearly, nearly the amount of renovation. It was more of a, you know, paint flat, slap a updated kitchen in there, uh, clean some things up and, and sell the property. And so, uh, it was, it was a good opportunity. I wasn't out prospecting or sending mailers or anything like that. It was just something that came across to me in my residential real estate sales business. And the sellers were like, ah, no, you know what? I'm going to, I got a letter in the mail. I'm just going to sell it to these guys. Cause they said they're going to buy it cash as is. And I, and I was like, oh, you know, I had put in some time doing an analysis for them on, on what I could sell it for. And I think I told them we could probably sell it for 250 to 260 in its current condition as is on the normal market. Mm. And and I was like, hey, just out of curiosity, like, what's the offer for? And they're like, it's 200,000 cash as is. And I said, okay, you know, I totally understand, you know, just just to be clear, like, I think you're leaving some money on the table. And they said, yeah, we don't care. We're, we're just ready to move on from this house. So I hung up. I called my brother. I said, how much money do you have? He said, about 100,000 bucks. I said, I have about 100,000 bucks. <laughs> like, I'm going to call this guy back and tell him that we also buy cash as is for $202,000. And, uh, and so we did. And uh, he said, great, that's two thousand more dollars for me. We got a, a construction crew that we worked with on the on the project kind of during our short 20 day close window. We had them in there the day after we closed. We spent 30 grand with them rehabbing it, adding some of the things that I just talked about. And we sold it for three hundred thousand uh, bucks 30 days after that. So it was like a 60 day flip and we made 50 grand or so or. 60 grand, something like that on that deal. And so that is the way they are supposed to go. But I just didn't <laughs> think I could repeat that scenario over and over again. Now, real quick on the wife, she's from Pittsburgh originally as well or no? Yeah, absolutely. Yep. My wife's and from she, Pittsburgh. Uh, yep. Go ahead. Did she move with you? You mentioned like you wanted to move back. So did she move with you early on when you were wrestling dinosaurs? Yeah. Yeah. So we actually met in Charleston, <laughs> South Carolina. Uh, and you know, we'd grown up really about 20 miles apart from each other in Pittsburgh, but we met in Charleston, South Carolina, moved to Washington, DC together. Uh, she was a, a, a public school teacher there and really supported us. Cause I had no income when we, when we first moved there. And so it was her job that was able to support us for the first, you know, three to six months while I learned a little bit about the real estate game. And then, and then together we made the decision to, uh, to move to, to Pittsburgh. And, you know, now, you know, 10 years later, we've got a, a 10 year old and a nine year old. And, uh, we're pretty well entrenched here. There you go. So you have this first deal. Your wife is a school teacher. So I'm going to guess she's fairly pragmatic. So you have this first deal where you're kind of like, you know, by the hair of your chinny chin chin, you make it out. Like you said, plus minus a few grand, maybe not really keeping great records. And then another deal comes out, comes up and you got a hundred grand and you're going to put it all in with your brother on a second deal. When the first one you know, like, Hey man, take a hint. It sounds like, like maybe, maybe you got, you know, you got your lesson on that. W what was your wife's reaction? Was she all in? Was she like, yeah, whatever. No, I don't care. I trust you. Or was there some discussion there? Yeah, she's, she's incredibly trusting, uh, of, of, of me on the, on the business side of things for our family. And, and, uh, if, if I have a strong belief that it will work, uh, she, she usually gets right, right behind on that. And that's, uh, that's a huge benefit for, to me.
No kidding, man. That's, that's a, for anybody single, that's a major, major part of the courtship process. Like, you know, is there faith in one another's abilities or not? So I love that. All right. So you flip a second house successfully in 30 days, like really quick. Why not continue that? Why not see that as, oh, you know what? Wow. We can, we can really stack some cash here. Like why go right to commercial? Yeah, it's, it, it still felt like, uh, it felt a little bit like being a real estate agent to me and, and, in terms of the fact that it was pretty active, um, you had to be pretty involved in the process the whole time, start to finish. And then, then once you sold it, it was done. Uh, you know, you had made the income from that project and, and that was the end of it. And I, I really, you know, I, I was fortunate to be successful as a, as a residential real estate agent and, and kind of earn a pretty high active income but I didn't see it as being a sustainable thing. And I thought the trade-off wasn't quite there. It's kind of like running your own small business, but having, there's not a lot to sell when you're done. When you close up your shop, maybe you put it, you know, you add a small team underneath of you and, and you get some residual from that team as you sail off into the sunset, so to speak. But you don't have any like physical business to sell necessarily when you're done with that, with that role. And so you can go from being a pretty high earning uh, 1099 type employee to, to having not a lot of earnings. So I wanted to create something that, that would continue to provide income for myself and my family, you know, into the future. So, um, I thought longer term investing was a better fit. And that was, that was the real impetus for, for moving into the commercial side of things. Makes total sense. All right. So this is 2016, that second flip. Second flip was 2017, 2017. How long before you got into your first commercial deal and what was it? So that was at the end of 2017. It was, a a 39 unit portfolio, uh, in a, in like a small town, call it like a suburb of Pittsburgh, basically. Um, that was the second half of a pretty dirty and distressed portfolio. The first half, the better half had already been sold to another group of of investors in town. And, and we kind of came in and and picked up the second half. Uh, it was pretty rough. We bought it for 1.223 million. Uh, that was myself, my brother, and then we brought in a third partner for that one because we didn't have enough money to to qualify for that deal. And I had a friend that that you know I had been talking a lot to about business and that we were interested in forming a partnership. So the three of us formed that partnership, and uh, and t- we were able to take down that deal. I think we had about four hundred thousand dollar rehab budget uh, rolled into that as well, and uh, it was comprised of I think five commercial units and then what, 34 apartments, something along those lines. Interesting. But you're paying 31,000 a unit essentially at that point. You, yeah. It, right. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. But it needed like, I mean, they were, they were rough. Like every single unit needed a full rehab basically. Yeah. This is uh this is a straight JV, you, your brother and, and, and the friend, right? This isn't a syndication something you raise capital for. Correct. We all Do just you still- took all the money we could scrape up and, and we did that. <laughs> Do you still own that property? We do. We own parts of it. We we sold off. We added a few more pieces in that in that specific submarket, and then we we called a few of the the buildings that that we didn't you know really want or did you know weren't going to get to. So uh, we we still own approximately the same number of units down there. They're all in renovated condition now, and we were able to refi that original deal. Uh, Eleven months after we bought it, we pulled out eighty five percent of our cash each. Wow. So. We have very little money left in that, which enabled us to go buy buy some more properties. In that yeah, area. yeah. What do you what do you anticipate that value being today? If it was one point, you said two three three when you bought it. Yeah, one point two two three. So, 
Uh, today, we're still sitting around 39 units right there. We have sold off over a million dollars worth of real estate, you know, in that, in that portfolio. Yeah. And I think the residual value is right around, right around 3 million bucks right now. Incredible. Incredible. Wow. All right. So now you're off and running. When does, when do you syndicate your first deal? When does that happen? So our, our initial, well, number one, I didn't know what syndicating was uh, in 2017. <laughs> Me neither. Uh, and, I heard and it on a bigger two, pockets podcast and it sounded like, okay, that, no, no. I don't even that, that I don't yeah. even understand the word. So yeah, I got you. Yep, yep. I I learned about it on a podcast as well. Some we were visiting friends in DC, and somebody was like, "Hey, my friend is is on this podcast called Old Capital Real Estate Podcast," and I was like, "Oh, I'll check that out." And I listened to it on the way home, and I was like, "Oh my gosh, this is what I've been missing." <laughs> so, um, so in any case, uh, we one even once I learned about syndication, uh, we wanted to do like a, a decent number of deals on our own with our own money initially, because we knew we were going to make a lot of mistakes. I didn't feel comfortable reaching out and asking to utilize anybody else's money or, you know, put their money to work for them until I felt like I had a really good grasp on things. And my partners had this, you know, the same, the same feeling. So um, we did about three years of, of buying and renovating and, and rehabbing and, and kind of building our portfolio before we syndicated. So we, we didn't syndicate our first deal until uh, 2020. And that was, uh, it's kind of like a combination syndication of, of a couple of properties. Uh, so it was 62 units of residential apartments that were vacant and condemned. Uh, and uh, we had, there was about a 10,000 square foot main street kind of commercial mixed use building and to build kind of like a big enough pie so that everybody made a decent amount of money from the project, we, we kind of bundled those together. It also kind of diversified the syndication as well, which, which, you know, I, I actually think has worked out pretty well for everybody. So that was in the summer of 2020. Uh, yeah. Wow. That's right in the yeah. middle of right in the big, like, I don't know, like the initial phases of COVID, uh, which was an interesting time. So this deal, was it a deal that you found in the summer of 2020 or was there a tale to this because of the headwinds of COVID? Like, did you find it in January and then the world shuts down, the contract gets extended or did you find it summer 2020 and close a few months later? Yeah, you know, actually, so, so the way it worked out is we, we probably came into the deal around the summer of 2020 and it because of the situation uh, involving the seller on that deal and, and, the, and the state of the properties, we didn't really close it until the summer of 2021. So truly the syndication happened wow. in the summer of 2021, but we worked on that project for like a year just to just about to get it to closing. And, uh, and so, I mean, it was worth it. You know, we're, we're in a very, very good place on that project, but it certainly took a lot of persistence and time uh, to, to get that to close. What did you learn about raising capital on that first deal? What's a lesson or two that you took away from that? So first of all, even though that project did take a year, we didn't reach out and start raising capital until, you know, the late spring of 2021 on that project. So wow. we, we made sure that the, the deal had a lot of cushion that we were we were very positive that we were going to close the deal. Um, and, you know, at the time that, you know, if you look back on all the all the real estate guys these days, they're like, oh, yeah, 2021 was the heyday of, of raising money. And I, I mean, I would have to agree with that. It was not hard for us to do. We did put, you know, a nice deck together and spend our time 
um, doing that, the raise was only a million and a half. So it wasn't a crazy amount of money, but it was scary. It was, it was the first time, you know, we had ever reached out, uh, and, and asked a bunch of people to, uh, to put money behind us. So, um, that said, I think we had the deal fully committed in under a week and, uh, and, you know, I think it was, it was really just from, just so I know, like, uh, I want to hear your lessons, but who from like, so you, you're, you're doing your own deals. You were an agent before that. Like, who are the people that, how much did you have to raise and who are the people that you had the ability to go to? Did you, had you been building a list? Had you been marketing for the future potential of doing a deal? Like, how did you, who did you raise from how much? And then we'll go back to lessons. Sorry. <laughs> sure. Sure. Yeah. So, uh, our minimum, our minimums on that were, geez, I want to, I want to say they were 50, um, on, on that raise they were 50, I believe. So, uh, and, and even though we hadn't syndicated or, or, or done kind of public deals like that before, like I love talking about real estate. So I would always talk about real estate to everybody. So mm-hmm. everybody would then come to me and say like, Hey, I know you're doing this. How are you doing it? So I had just kind of like built like a, just a general network of people that, that kind of often came to me for real estate advice of friends and family. So, uh, they were certainly a core part of that group where we raised money from. And then other, other folks in that group were like past clients of mine from, from real estate, residential real estate transactions from, from years prior. Uh, and then my, my other partners had some business associates and business contacts and friends, uh, that also, you know, that, that were also part of that pool. And I think, I think our biggest check in there was pretty substantial, like 500 and, and wow. our smallest was, you know, 50, 50. About 50 what was the total equity now, so. on that deal? Total equity raise? 1.5. Okay. Oh, so you have one person pick up a third of it, which is awesome. And then a bunch of others kind of yeah. pick up the, the, the difference there. Okay. I'm sorry. So lessons yeah, and, yeah. and you could take this as, as however you want to, maybe you didn't learn the lesson on that first deal until your third or fourth deal, or maybe you're learning the lesson today from that first deal. And now, like you said, you were in the heyday in 2021, but I'm just kind of curious, like from a capital raising perspective, like what are the two, two, three things that you've learned over the time that you've been doing it? Yeah. I mean, really, I think the most important part of it is, is just really being conservative in the, in the underwriting that you do and in the way that you present the deal to clients and try to be as realistic as possible. Like, you know, if if you want to paint a picture where everything is kind of coated with rose colored glasses, I think you're going about it the wrong way. Mm. Um, I think being upfront and then, uh, continually throughout the process, communicating everything, uh, you know, on a quarterly basis, at least to your investors is, is, is something that I've found to be very helpful for us and, and for our investors. I think it makes people comfortable. I think they feel like they have a good understanding of what's going on. And, uh, and I think that just being a realist is, is very, very important, uh, when you're, when you're setting up the deal and, and then, you know, of course the, uh, under promise over deliver is, is what we go for. <laughs> Smart. I, you know, I, I funny the first time I did a capital call, capital raising call, I should say, I got on the phone for the first time to raise capital. I remember this pressure in, in my gut to like perform and I, I no other way of saying it, but get the money. You know what I mean? In, in a way it's like, I'm trying to sell and close and it just felt, Oh, it was so uncomfortable. And I give Mark Henteman credit, you know, my, my partner, it was like, he's like, listen, uh, the role in capital is like never, ever feel like you're begging people for money. He's like, just be an advisor. And like, you know what? I'm going to try that. And so that's what I do now when I get in a call and people are asking about, like, I go into it with just like, all right, what are you trying to do? What are you trying to accomplish? What's your long-term goal? How liquid do you need to be? You know, I, I, I ask all these questions of people 
and then direct them. And sometimes, honestly, I'm ending the call referring them over to a, a self storage deal or something, a debt fund that I've heard of, you know, or whatever. Like, hey, listen, like we're here for you. You want to invest, but if you're saying you need to be like, you know, liquid in two years. I think we can return a percentage of that. Our, tr our track record is to refi and, you know, in two, three years and return some money. But if you need it all back, this might not be the right opportunity for you, but this is, and it's not a ninja trick, but at the same time with that energy, I feel like I've raised more capital as a result of, of just being clear and honest and, and very upfront. Like the deals we get in are uh, heavy value add. So that means like I very quickly, like, yeah, the pref is eight. Do not expect 8% like until year three or two, two, three, right? And like, we might have to sure up the pref at refi. Like you might be short of the pref. And the first thing we're gonna do is make sure you get your full pref, but don't look at this as, oh, I'm gonna get 8% every year in the beginning, especially like we have another, we have a fund, yeah. uh, a, a class shares for that. If you want no upside on the equity, but you want you know more of like a secure pref every quarter. But that kind of stuff I think is what builds trust. And it sounds like that's what you said, under promise, over deliver, be really clear, really transparent, all of that. I'll let you dive in, but that's kind of my take. No, a hundred percent on that. And, and, and to the point too, it's, it is odd to ask, like it feels odd or weird to, to go out and, and talk about asking people for money, but, but it is a mindset. Like it is beneficial certainly to, to the folks that invest as well as it is to us. Like we need the money, uh, but it's certainly beneficial to those that are investing with us. And, and if you, if you kind of wrap your head around that and, and then, you know, you, you, you kind of go about it in that way, I think you number one, come off much better to potential investors, but number two, you, you can actually like, you're not approaching it with a scarcity mindset. You're like, you know, there's plenty of money out there for us to go raise. We turn down lots of money yeah. uh, on, on these different raises. And so it's, if, if you get on a call with a syndicator that is begging you uh, and pressuring you to put their money into the deal, you should run away. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, uh, good that advice. is not the right, the right type of person to, uh, to invest with. And that's not the, the right way to approach it. That's kind of a me first attitude. And, and the syndication really is a partnership. So, um, I think all the conversations should start out that way from the beginning. That's great advice. Great advice. I like that. I like that point you made too about like, hey, you are adding value to these people, right? Like, hey, this is somebody who's looking for a return for their money. They're going to place it somewhere. And you, if you believe in your product and you believe in what you're doing, I think that's a great point. Get your mind around that. Ah, I like that. I appreciate you saying that. So today we're in 2023, summer 2023, different world. You know, we're, we're, all, we're all looking at, uh, at what's going on. My first question on that, I have two, is of the deals you've done, and, well, I'll just ask it bluntly. Are any at risk? How do you feel about your portfolio going into, into what we're going into right now, which is, you know, an increasing rate environment likely to be, you know, a couple more increases before the end of the year, probably stabilized for a bit. So we're probably in a higher interest rate environment for say the next 12 months. Let's just go with that. Maybe 18, but I think 12 is a safe bet. How is your portfolio doing against that? Do you have debt term, enough debt term to kind of ride through it? Just kind of give me an idea of, of, of that, what that looks like. Yeah, no, that's that's a great question. And I think uh, certainly a timely one. So from from our perspective, we always follow like our, our syndication models are simple. Everything about what we do is very clean, simple, and there's, you know, not a lot of complexity behind it. And, and, and because of that, we've always gravitated towards fixed rate debt. So we don't have any floating debt, which is great. Um, we don't have any loan maturities coming up until I think 2026. So we have locked locked low rate debt through 2026 
any deals that we've bought in the past year, you know, we've, we've bought them with six and a half percent interest or six and a quarter, whatever they're at. And, and those are fixed for the next five years, but we have options to refi out of those in three years if we want to, if, if, if the markets, you know, become more favorable for us. So we're fortunate to be in a, in a position where, uh, our debt is, is what we knew it would be. And, uh, we're not, we're not getting swamped by these kind of increased interest rates that said, I wish we could buy more right now. Uh, it's tough. It's tough to buy deals that make sense. Uh, so I feel like we've been incredibly patient uh, for, you know, going on 18 months now or maybe 14 months. And and so I'm certainly ready to buy deals. Uh, but the uh, I think that's that's been the hardest part of it for our business. So during the time where we're not out there, like really accumulating a lot of new real estate, we're just spending our time focused on kind of improving internal operations and and making sure that we're ready uh ready to go internally for for when we can ramp ramp back up on on buying the larger properties and we're buying some smaller deals internally just you know in the meantime to keep to keep the ball moving forward but uh, i'm excited to get back out there and and buy some larger deals when we can find some that makes sense for us what's a smaller deal what do you mean by that could define that for me yeah so it could be a smaller deal really anything I would say I'm calling anything that we can do on our own without outside money uh, or, you know, syndicated funds, a smaller deal. So that could be, we did like a, a four unit kind of townhouse complex that was in very close proximity to a lot of other units that we, that we own uh, that we had to use very little of our own money on uh, just kind of that rolls right in the portfolio nicely. We're, we're working on a, a $2 million ish seller financed, deal uh, right now, again, where we're not using a ton of our own money. Um, so it's almost like more of like we're doing creative deals right now while we wait for the more standardized deals to, to pencil out a little bit better. So that's funny. Our, our last three have all been creatively financed. The one was a 1031 that took up all the equity lady sold the investor sold a whole bunch of property. She's just had forever, like that millionaire next door type of thing. Like Bought some property yes. in a in a in a rising market for forty years, and now she's old uh, or older. I should yeah. say old, and doesn't want to deal with it. So she sells and has millions coming in, and just wants to place it somewhere. So ten thirty one's in to be all the equity on one building. Uh, so we you know we have no debt. She is the you know we we rate the the GP funded the the remaining amount, and then you know she she was the the main investor. So there's a tick on that. And then the the uh, the deal after that, we assumed it, we assumed debt for four more years plus another floating five if we need it. Uh, and then the last one we just did was a seller finance at 2.99%, um, or 3%, yeah, excuse me, 3% awesome. fixed for three years, right? Interest only. So like you said, 2026 is kind of the first time we have to really think about um, whether or not there's there's a, a need to get out of this debt. But uh, it is it is seemingly the way to go right now. If you can get creatively, creative with financing, that's probably where you're going to get the deals. Yeah. And the sellers that understand that are, are the ones that are kind of willing, it seems like in a lot of cases to, uh, to make those, you know, put those creative finance deals together with you. And, and, um, you know, as long as everybody's on the same page and, and we can accomplish everybody's goals, you know, both ours and the sellers, uh, then I, I love a creative finance deal. I think they're fun to put together and I think that they can really be beneficial for both parties. So I just realized I lied. It's 2.99%. The reason that number was in my mind, that was the last one of my own deals that we refied into before it all crashed. The one that we just got was 2% <laughs> for three years fixed, 2% uh, uh, interest that, for that two, is three wild. years. Isn't that That's crazy? Crazy. crazy. But crazy. distressed seller, you know, the building needs a lot of work. We have a big CapEx budget on it and 
she needed out. And this was the, these were the terms that we could offer that made, like you say, like right now, that's the other question I have you like, that's, that's the terms that made it work. Anything more than that, it doesn't yeah. work. So do you want to sell? Do you not want to sell? Um, and she decided, well, okay, then yeah, I'm going to sell because those are the terms that work for you. What is, what are some of the adjustments you've had to make? If any, maybe, maybe you're kind of doing it the same way, but any adjustments to how you're underwriting or is it just, no, we're underwriting the same way, but obviously prices have come down and sellers just aren't in that space of thinking that they have yet. What, what's sort of changed in your underwriting or your calculus as far as buying going forward? Yeah, we're, we're underwriting the same way. We're just, of course, using today's, today's terms and, and, and rates that are out there. And, and that certainly affects the, uh, the price point, you know, Pittsburgh's an interesting market in this and in, in that it never, you know, for the types of real estate that we're buying, which is, you know, kind of workforce housing or middle market, uh, multifamily primarily, uh, you know, we never saw three and a half, four and a half cap, even really five. So, you know, Pittsburgh is like a slow and steady market, although we have seen some nice bumps recently, but, you know, an aggressive deal would be in the low five cap rate range. And, and we're not, we're not writing, you know, we're not underwriting deals anywhere near that now. We're probably at six and a half or six in, in, in the best sub markets and, uh, yeah. and higher than that in the, in the tertiary markets. Such a great city. I think I told you this. I had my, when I had my day job uh, before I moved to Michigan, when I was in Boston, my job was, you know, we're an insurance claims. Uh, I was in insurance claims. So we have these partner shops. You ever get in an accident, your insurance company says, oh, we have this preferred shop. Like, so we had a whole bunch of those and they would need to perform to a certain standard, you know, our standard for the, for the customers that, that use those shops. So I, my job was traveling around the Eastern part of the country to go to these shops to make sure they're abiding by the standards. And I mean, if you know me, that is like the worst job for me. Like I'm not a process <laughs> guy. I'm just not right. I, that's the worst job. I'm like, well, you're not doing this quite right. Yeah. We don't want to like, yeah, fuck it. Just going to do it the way you want. To. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. anyway, um, Pittsburgh, man, I I've said this, like I, I lived in Boston. So like New York down Florida, all the way, everything in between. The one city, if anybody asked me, like, what's your favorite city to fly to, to go to, to travel to? I was oh, Pittsburgh. Like, really? I'm like, it's an, it's just a cool, it's at the time, a cool vibe, walkable. It's like old city with new sort of energy to it. Um, it's not that big, so it's easy to get around. I would stay at a Hilton uh, uh, that's like on the University of Pittsburgh campus uh, often. And my favorite place to go in the entirety of the East uh, Coast for lunch was a place called Smallman Street Deli. I think I told you that once. Oh, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know if you've been. I can't remember if you've been there or not. It's been a minute, but yes. Yep. Un absolutely. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. I mean, it's, you know, I, I don't know how to describe it. Like, Permani Brothers, I think, is overdone. It's kind of a cute gimmick, but... Yeah. Um, but Smallman street was like the legit real, like you think about those Pittsburgh sandwiches just filled up with meat and, oh God, so good. So anyway, it's <laughs> my shout keep, out. Yeah. To I keep shouting it from the rooftops, man. We love that. We love to hear that. <laughs> Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh needs more, uh, more tourists like you. I love that. <laughs> Great city. Great city. More people should visit. There was a movie film there too. What, uh, uh, she, it was like, she was too hot for him. What was the name of that movie? Um, I don't know. There's, there's been a bunch, there's an odd little movie scene here. So there's been some, some interesting movies that have been filmed in the Pittsburgh market kind of. She's out of my league. That was the name of the movie. It's like okay. this <laughs> yeah. gorgeous blonde and this skinny, goofy Pittsburgh penguin fan, you know, dude, he's like, it's completely. And he just was so insecure about the fact that she might actually like him, but it was all in Pittsburgh, that gondola thing that goes up a hill was part of it. It was, it was all, all of Pittsburgh movies. So I don't know. Cool town. <laughs> Nice, nice. All right, let's so, dive into these member questions. Uh, we'll, we'll, I'll, I'll sure. save you the rest of my love fest for for Pittsburgh. So we have six pillars in GoBundance. They are 
genuine contribution, bucket list adventure, age-defying health, uh, authentic relationships, horizontal income, and extreme accountability. Of those six, which one are you crushing it in? So, uh, you know, every year uh, in GoBundance and, and quarterly for most people, you kind of got a, you've got a one sheet. That's an exercise that we do. And, and uh, so one of my major focuses this year was, was health. I turned 40 uh, last September. And so I, I really wanted to put a big push into, into health this year. So I, I think I'd have to go with the, uh, the age defying health. Wow. What, give me what, what, what's, are there some stats on, on improvement in health? Like what, what's happened for you? Yeah, sure. So, um, 10 years ago I had, I had gotten into triathlons a little bit and that was the last time I, last time I did them. So part of the kind of, part of that, uh, age defying health was getting back into triathlon training and knocking out a few triathlons earlier, uh, this year. So those, those have been completed. I was, you know, I just, I never rebounded from like the, you know, the, uh, the COVID, the COVID 20. <laughs> so, uh, I've, I've been able to pretty much drop those 20 pounds. I I'd like to, I'd like to knock off another 15 or so. Nice. And, uh, but it really, it's been around the consistency of, you know, good workouts and just being a bit more mindful about my eating, um, about my you know, sleep honestly is, is a big piece of that for me as well. And just really tracking all that stuff a little bit more and understanding, you know, what's good and, and what's bad and, and focusing and, and trying to trend more towards the good. So, you know, makes sense. Yeah. I just posted in the group about sleep because I I've had this pat weird sleep pattern where I get to sleep fine, wake up at 3am and I can't get back to sleep. And my God, how many guys are into sleep hacks? <laughs> It's insane. Oh the amount gosh. of responses yeah. I got. If there's one thing, one thing, and I don't know if this is you or not, it's the eight sleep. Everyone's telling me to get the eight sleep. Do you have that? No, I don't. I mean, honestly, like there's, there's really one thing that is the key to me getting good sleep. And that is effectively, if, if I drink even a couple of drinks before, you know, like after dinner, before I go to bed, my sleep scores are absolutely terrible. Like you mean like alcohol or just anything? Yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. Alcohol. Sorry. Alcohol. Yeah. Alcohol. Wine, yeah. beer. It could be any, any type of alcohol, but, um, it, you know, and then I'll like compare that to my wife since you know, we've each had two glasses of wine and she'll have like a 90 and I'll have like a 31. <laughs> so wow. I'm just, I'm overly sensitive for some reason to, um, in terms of how, how that alcohol affects my sleep. And it's both like the REM sleep and the deep sleep. Like they just don't really happen for me. Uh, so, wow. You got a day uh, drink. That, that's, it's the only I, solution. That's, that's the thing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> All right. And which GoBundance pillar could you use more support and accountability? Uh, you know, I, I think it's kind of the extreme accountability pillar. Uh, it, you know, as just my personality type, like I don't love a lot of structure, uh, but it turns out it's like really good for me. Uh, so, um, <laughs> and structure kind of leads to consistency. And so, uh, having accountability around like consistent, healthy habit habits or, or anything really like, you know, business goals, personal goals, family goals. Um, so it's, it's that accountability around, uh, consistency. So you're resistant to others or to some level of accountability. Is that what, is that what it is? I am. But then when I have it, I really like it. <laughs> how, do you, how do you leverage it then? Like uh, your pod, like how do you leverage uh, accountability or how can you, what can you commit to as far as leveraging accountability for some of your health habits? Yeah. So, so I think, um, 
the the biggest hack for me, whether it's within my pod or, or whether just in my like friend and family group is if I, if I like state something publicly, uh, because like, I don't have like a, I have a few coworkers now cause we've added some people to our, to our team in the company. But, um, if I state something publicly, it's kind of like, then there's like this external pressure around myself that I need to go ahead and, and, and achieve that goal or, or hit that milestone. So that that's kind of how I do it. And I just, I need to kind of lean into that. Well, you got thousands of people that listen to this episode. So there you go. There's your statement publicly. <laughs> love it. I Good love job. It. Good job. Um, where in your life are you potentially flirting with disaster? That's a good one. Uh, I, you know, I think for me, uh, interestingly, it, it's probably personal finance again, it, it, and that's probably around uh, structure. I don't really love it. We've, we've never really done a proper family budget. I always made like a pretty decent bit of money. And so it was just kind of like never really a, a, a concern. And about a year and a half ago, you know, I stopped selling residential real estate. I cut back on some other things that I was doing and I moved full time into Rice Pegger Capital, which is our, our real estate investment company. So I draw a salary, um, but I'm no longer getting like, you know, here's a $30,000 commission check bump that, you know, et cetera type thing. So it's, yeah. it's uh, getting used to being on like more of a fixed income is, is a different kind of thing for me and, and for the family. And so I struggle with you know, do we get really serious about it and put this really strong budget in place? And and there are, you know, the future plans allow for things to probably go back to where they were and, and be in a more comfortable position. Um, and I see the road to that. But I always struggle with like, do we really buckle down and, and curtail our lifestyle, which is fantastic? Or uh, I'm like, I'm an entrepreneur. Should I just go make some more money? Like, So yeah. that's, a, that's a constant I'm, struggle. Dude, I'm, I'm, that's that 100% me. I hate hate, hate thinking about my personal finances. Um, the only thing that's helped me, you ever hear of, do you know who T. Harv Eker is? No. T. Harv, I think he wrote uh, Millionaire Mind or something like that. If you've ever listened to the, the, the uh, Audible book, he's, I have a millionaire mind. You're supposed to tap yourself on the head. It's goofy, but he's a big, <laughs> okay. you know, big name in the personal development space, probably in the era, I could be wrong, in the era of like a Bob Proctor or uh, maybe, you know, early Tony Robbins or whatever, but he has a six account system. So you like allocate across six accounts, every dollar that you take in, it's like a necessities budget or a necessities account, a fun account, a travel account, a tithing or giving account, a contribution, I'm sorry, a uh, savings account and an investment account, right? And like you just, you allocate your money across those six accounts and then just sort of like set it and forget it. And over time, like yeah, you want to join a GoBundance, you look at your, your education account. It's like, oh, I can, I'll just take that money and allocate it. Like for me, that's been the best system that I could stick with, but like, open up a spreadsheet once a month to go through and like, Oh, let me just make sure. Uh, no, people say like, <laughs> what do you spend a month? I'm like, I think it's about this. <laughs> yeah. It's terrible. Yeah. It's a great problem to have, but it's terrible uh, when you think about it in those terms, but that, that system has helped me. So for whatever it's worth. Awesome. I'll have to check it out. <laughs> All right. In what specific way has GoBundance impacted your life? Uh, you know, I, I think it's, like the, when I went to the, the first ever event that I went to, which was, uh, park city, I think, uh, you know, I like, I got into the room and, and, you know, people started chatting and talking to stuff. And I was just like, wow, this is amazing. Like there's a room full of people that think a lot like I think. And, and just so like having a community of like-minded people is, is pretty, pretty awesome. But then, um, really like 
understanding that and and just this is i think again through people that i met at you know the in-person events in my pod and on calls that sort of thing uh but but being a little more introspective and and really taking a little bit more time to to understand like what i want long term and then mm. putting plans uh in place to ensure that i'm like driving towards that that longer term goal rather than it's like all right you know i want to make x amount of dollars this month or this year and I want to do this trip with my family. It's more about like, what do I want my life to look like three years from now? Or what do I want my business to look like three years from now? And, and then what are the steps to, to get me there? Like I'd never done that type of planning really um, in the past. And I'm doing a lot more of that right now. And, and um, like actually taking time to think about like, how do I feel about that? And, and that's for me, that's a big thing. That's amazing. I love it. That's a great change. What advice would you give to a new or prospective member of Eco Abundance community? I would say if you're going to, you know, shell out the box to join a group like this, it's not, you don't just pay for it and then get the, get the advantages to being involved in the group. Like you have to be involved. So you have to lean in. So, um, you know, going to the events in person, uh, doing things, you know, Pittsburgh only has one other, one other go abundance guy currently. And, uh, but there's some in, in, in Eastern Ohio. So I've created the local chapter for Western Pennsylvania, basically. And so I'm going to be running that, but, and I'm sure I'm going to get some great relationships out of that. And so it's just, you have to lean in and be involved or else, you know, it's not, it's not really worth it. You know, it's funny. I think that's the investment versus cost mentality. Like if you buy your house, you know, when you bought your house, that it wasn't a cost, it was an investment, right? For you, for your family, for the betterment, you know, the neighborhood you're in, the home you're in, but yeah, you're going to have to continually, you know, make sure the lawn is maintained. There's an additional investment to protect the core investment. Right. And I think that's the yeah. same, the same thing I talked to somebody recently about. It's like, you know, Hey, listen, I, you know, I get that it feels like you're shelling out or not shelling out, but like you're, you're spending a bunch of money and you are, I mean, that's money coming out of your pocket. But if you're, like you said, if you're invested in this community and you're getting around people like, and I didn't do it the first year, it took me a minute, but it was finally like, you know what I do need to, and I need to continue to maintain this investment. So Go to the local yeah. chapter meetings. Actually, we, we, I built my local, like you, it was two guys, me and one other guy in Michigan. Now there's 40, right? So I, I created that chapter and built it. Um, but then going to going to events and, and you know, making phone calls to guys that you met at the event and nurturing those relationships, like that investment of time and money, that, that continued investment is like any asset that you own, you want to continue to nurture it. So I think that's great advice. Great advice. Yeah. All right. Yep. Go ahead. Absolutely. Yep. Oh, no, no, I was, was going to say, I, it's funny. I, when, when, when I joined, I don't know if you remember, but you were the one that called me like after I submitted my application or yep. whatever to, uh, to like, you know, touch base and see what was up. And I was kind of like, I was committed. Like, you're like, you have any questions? I was like, no, like, I just, I'm ready to, <laughs> I'm ready to be involved. Yes. I do so. remember that. I remember seeing your website for some reason I have like browns and yellows. Is that right? Is that the color of your site? Yeah. Like golds and tans. Yeah. Golds and tans. Yeah. yeah. There you go. So yeah. I remember all of that for sure. Uh, final question is the eight of clubs from the GoBundance card game. And the question is actually, I like this. What's your great, this is random, but it fits. What's your greatest feat of physical endurance? Oh man, it's very timely. Uh, so <laughs> I it's just literally, uh, on July 1st, I completed the, the state college half Ironman. So that wow. was, uh, for me, that was a big deal. It had been 10 years since I'd, I'd done a race of that distance. And, uh, and so that, that was a, 
a long day, but a rewarding day. And you're 40, right? You're not 30 anymore. It's a different, different body. That's correct. It's different. <laughs> yeah. It's a little different. Yeah, absolutely. Incredible. So. Incredible. Eric, where can people learn more about you, your company, anything you want to direct them to? Yeah. So ricepegger.com is our, our company website. You can also find us at ricepegger uh, on Instagram and it's R-I-C-E like the food and pegger, P-E-G-H-E-R. Perfect. Appreciate you being on, man. Great connecting with you. Awesome, Jamie. Thanks.